I went to Bible college and I worked in a ministry afterwards. And it was a mission ministry. I was going to become a missionary to Brazil and work with street children. And the candidate director gave me some either great or some terrible advice. He said, why don't you go out and get some real world experience first? Well, when you have a Bible degree, real world doesn't want you to work for them. You have no skills. So after bumping around a few places, I went back, I got to tech school, I found a love for web design and development, and I worked in ISP building websites for all these different corporations and things like that. I thought, Lord, I am so far away from doing ministry. I'm not on the mission field whatsoever. Well, this church about seven, eight years ago was looking for somebody to do their website and to start a ministry that might begin to work through the internet. And it had its limitations, it was more technical in ministry, but then Dr. Reagan said, always on the verge of the, the newest ideas out there, he says, we need someone to minister through the web. And I had tried years to get that church to see that vision, and now I get to do it. And I went from the possibility of having a ministry with a few dozen couple people in Brazil, touching almost two million people possibly. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. And it's been a great blessing to be able to do that. <clears throat> Now we have a website, lamblion.com. We have a blog, Christ and Prophecy Journal. Uh, great place to We have a Facebook group if you're in a Facebook. And I get emails and I get questions and uh, soon tweets. People want me to start tweeting. And they want me to get in there and start answering the questions that they have about Bible prophecy. And I get some really good questions and I love the questions I get. And sometimes you get some very interesting questions. Would you all be interested in seeing a few of those more interesting questions? All right, let's do that. Now, if any of you wrote in with these, I apologize ahead of time. Okay? Okay. This person asked, Will getting the vaccine for the swine flu cause me to become demon-possessed? Now, while I go through these, think of how you would answer them. Yes, it will. No, it will not. It will not. Is Obama the Antichrist? After all, his name can be found in the Bible. What? Supposedly, if you mess around with the Hebrew words for Barack and Obama, yeah, it's in there. But no, I don't really think Obama's the Antichrist. Maybe one of the ten kings someday. Not the Antichrist. You're always saying this is the season of the Lord's return. But you never tell us just what season is. What is it? Fall? Winter? Spring? Summer? Now, some of you are probably saying, yeah, what is it? Is it spring, summer? No. It just means the age or the time period of the Lord's return. So, no. I can't tell you what, what season it will be. I like summer, though. Okay. Will my cat be raptured to heaven with me? Now, admit it. Half of you believe that your cats will be raptured to heaven. And it's a sensitive subject, and I have made enemies for saying, I just can't see Fluffy going through the sky. I just don't see it. But I could be wrong, and I admit I could be wrong, and I know half of you are going to send me hate mail on Monday, and I'm ready for you. Will Iran drop an EMP bomb and wipe out all the electricity in the U.S.? I don't want to miss your show, Christ and Prophecy. Isn't that great? We need more people like that. The refrigerator is out, they have no power, but they, they're worried about missing this show. That is a fan. I was wondering, is Nathan Jones still on this planet? Stop it with the rapture nonsense. Wake up. Yes, I am still on this planet. And you do get people who disagree with you. And with Bible prophecy, it's like having a puzzle. You know, you get a thousand-piece puzzle and you shake it up, but some of the pieces are missing or you're not quite sure the details. 
And Bible prophecy is a lot like that because it hasn't happened yet. We're looking towards the future. So there'll be some disagreement among the non-essential doctrines. And I'm up for that. But people can be kind of rude and hard on it. And I find some comfort in Aesop's fable. You ever heard of the Aesop's fable? It's about the two men and the donkey. Well, there's a boy and an old man, and they're taking a donkey to the market. And they want to sell a donkey. And they're walking along with the donkey, and they pass by a crowd. And they hear the crowd whispering to each other, and they say, those two guys are so stupid, they could be riding that donkey. Well, the old man and the young boy are like, yeah, you're right. So they get on the donkey, and they're moving around, and they're heading down. They pass another group, and somebody says, that poor donkey, that's animal abuse. They're riding it. Let's call PETA. So they get off. The young man does. He goes, well, okay, we'll break it up. And they're walking by, and they're saying, that selfish old man, letting that poor kid walk. So the old man and the young man, they look at each other, they sigh, they switch places, and they're walking along, and the lady whispers and says, that kid is so selfish, make that old poor man. So they don't know what to do. They're, t- they're totally, they throw their hands up in the air, they get an idea, they find some sticks, they make kind of a gurney, they put the donkey on it, and they start carrying the donkey. Now, if the donkey was Balaam's donkey, he'd be saying, suckers, this is great, you know? But they're walking along a ravine. Donkeys are heavy. The boy stumbles. The donkey goes down the ravine, dies. And they have nothing to sell. And the moral of Aesop's story was, you can't please everybody. And with Bible prophecy, everyone has their own way they want it to turn out. Sometimes they want to really participate in it and go through the tribulation, things like that. And others of us, you know, we're ready to go. And so, if there's anybody who has different interpretations, that's fine too. And I get to talk with these people every day. It's very exciting. Very exciting to talk to people every day. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story from Bible prophecy. And it is an exciting story. There's kings. There's heroes. There's villains. There's wars. There's disasters. And by the time this particular war ends, it will change the face of the earth. And so I don't scare you. I'll let you know ahead of time. The good guys win. And you can already begin finding this story in the newspaper. Now, I don't read the paper. Paper? Yeah. It's leisure grime and all, but my wife says I only ever get the newspaper to read the funnies, which is true. But uh, why don't we check this one? I get all my news on the Internet. Part of being a web minister is reading news all the time to try to see what things are fitting into the biblical uh, picture. Now listen to these few stories. Iranian leaders pave way for the Messianic Mahdi. Iran last week held a multi-day conference to plot what can be done to hasten the coming of the Messianic end times personage known as the Mahdi. Shiite Muslims believe in the Mahdi as a Messianic figure who will return after an apocalypse to elevate Shiite Islam to the status of the only true religion, where the consequences of all false religions, including suiting Islam, will be vanquished. Israeli military intelligence experts are convinced that Ahmadinejad's expressed religious devotion to the Mahdi is genuine. Hmm. Here's some of the things that uh, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, now I had to practice saying that, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said, anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. The skirmishes in the occupied land are part of a war of destiny. The outcome of hundreds of years of war will be defined in Palestinian land. As the Imam says, Israel must be wiped off the map. I would say Ahmadinejad is pretty serious about his convictions, wouldn't you? Oh, I guess so. Look, five more nuke plants spotted in Iran. Deep cover MI6 agents who found the previously secret underground uranium enrichment plant near the Iranian holy city of Aquam 
of discovering a staggering five more secret plants. Iran, here's another article, has enough uranium to build at least two bombs. The Atomic Energy Association indicates that Iran now has at least 1,508 kilograms of low-sodium uranium. Thus, Iran now appears to have the essential materials to move steadily towards building two atomic bombs as soon as it makes the political decision to do so. I think they're ready to do so. Or about let's go down to Gaza. Gaza rockets can now reach Tel Aviv. The head of Israel's military intelligence on Tuesday, November 2nd, warned that Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip now possess missiles capable of reaching Tel Aviv. There's no place safe in Israel anymore from rockets. Or what is Iran just threatening Israel? Look at this. Here they're threatening the oil transportation routes. With the prospect of Israel's bombing nuclear facilities looming, Tehran has renewed its threat to shut down the strategic strait of Hormuz, which is 40% of the world's oil passes. Most of that to us. And this one just boggles the mind. This is one that would make Don McGee go through the roof. Sudan wins a seat on the UN Human Rights Commission. That's like Pol Pot putting put in charge of a daycare. <laughs> Turkey, an ally no more. Turkey has taken a radical turn in their international policies, abandoning almost overnight its two-decade-long relationship with Israel. On October 13, 2009, Turkey canceled a joint military exercise with Israel and instead signed a treaty with Syria that includes plans to strengthen military ties and to end visa requirements for each country. Syria is one of Israel's most aggressive border neighbors. Or about that little country of Armenia up near Turkey? The Armenian-Turkish Accord, this article is called. In the news is the historical geopolitical establishment of protocols for full diplomatic relations between the Armenian and Turkish people. Armenia is also a full member of the Russian-led military alliance known as the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And that was a mouthful, too. Or about 10, large quantities of natural gas found off Haifa coast. Israel has found the mother load of natural gas deposits. Noble Energy and a consortium of exploration and drilling companies have, after five years of drilling on the Tamar site, 56 miles west of the northern port of Haifa in Israel, discovered an estimated 3 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. And here's the last one. Russian-Syrian-Iranian axis. Russia, Iran, and Syria have entered a defense pact that is in the process of altering the balance of power in the entire Middle East. The facts reveal a long, steady Russian commitment to the Iranian nuclear program and arms supply to Syria. Iran, Russia, Turkey, all becoming friends. Russia supplying rockets and weapons to Gaza. The Sudan, part of a group that will decide if Israel's working and committed war crimes during the uh, cast lead. This all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? I don't know. The more I read the news, the more I think that that's in the Bible somewhere. You know what it is? Y'all have your Bibles? We're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, while you're opening it, we're going to start with Ezekiel chapter 38. I'll give you a little background on Ezekiel there. And You know, he was a young guy like me. I only found a picture of an older guy, but I guess he got older eventually. But he was a young prophet. He was probably in his 30s or 40s. And he ministered to Israel just as Israel got exiled out of the land. Now, you remember, Israel kept disobeying for hundreds and hundreds of years, and God finally said, i got to follow through. He kicked them out of the land. They were sent up to Assyria and then later to Babylon. And Ezekiel prophesied to Israel in exile 2,600 years ago. Okay. 
if I sit down here, can you all see me? I'm kind of short. Good. All right. Got the A-OK. All right. Let's go through Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. I'm reading out of the uh, nearly inspired version. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out, you and your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, and all with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all its troops, and beth Tugarma from the north with all its troops and many nations with you. That doesn't sound like modern times very much, does it? I mean, who is this Gog after all? Here God's addressing this guy called Gog. Some kind of military leader, some personage. It's not a country. And it's a person that has extreme power. And I will tell you that I believe it's going to be a person who would be possessed. Kind of like the, you know, the principalities and powers of this world. They're over different countries. The Bible talks about the prince of Tyre, the prince of Sidon. They are, it's a spiritual person. And here God is addressing this guy that he calls Gog. And he is the chief prince. Now it depends on your uh, translation. There's a word called Rus. And it can be interpreted either as chief or as a people group. Now, historically, Doctor, I don't want to get into it, but the Rus are historically the Russian people. I even wrote a map. So, Gog will be a leader, the Bible is telling us, from a land called Roth, Rus or Rosh, and that is in Russia. So we know from the Bible that we're talking about here is the leader of this army is going to be somebody from Russia. And he will either be the chief or he will be, excuse me, the chief from Russia. And the Lord says, I am against you. O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, it would have been really helpful if Ezekiel told us the modern names of the countries. But we can trace and go back and find out that there's different countries that fit the bill. Now, you see that little green dot right in the middle there? That's Israel. I know Americans aren't big on geography. I'm learning too. But Israel's right in the middle there, and the little J stands for Jerusalem, and it's only about the size of New Jersey. And Israel's right there, and they're looking at some point to have a war with Russia, or Rosh. Magog is the lands of the Stans, Uzbekistan, all those, can't pronounce them all, but those are the Stans. He talks about Persia. Persia is the ancient name for Iran. Ethiopia, or down there is Sudan, possibly Ethiopia. Put is Libya, Algeria, possibly Tunisia, and Turkey. Matter of fact, that little country of Armenia next to Turkey still calls itself Togarma today. The people groups do. So we know today what the modern names of those nations are. And all the nations that God will lead come out of all those different groups all against Israel. And that's how it's setting up the battle. Get ready. Be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered around you and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that is recovered from war. His people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have long been desolate. They've been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering 
the land. Now, it's interesting here. Israel, according to this, has recovered from a war. Wow, they've had a lot of wars. But isn't it interesting that the Gog, Magog alliance that the Bible is talking about is missing all the border countries around Israel. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Gaza. And we know those countries hate Israel. They've got millions, excuse me, thousands of missiles pointed at Israel right now. So, it could be that this is talking about a war that Israel has to subjugate the countries around them. Because otherwise, these guys would be right involved. We know, too, that Israel as a nation exists. They are gathered from the people, are gathered from the many nations, back to the mountains of Israel. They are brought out of the nations. And we have seen that today, 1948, when Israel is brought out of all the nations and have started to fill up Israel more and more so. We know there's lots of Jews still around the world. But they're going back to Israel. Brought you out from the nations, and they live in safety. Now, safety is an interesting word. It could mean a number of things. It could mean they live competently in the land. It could mean that they're ingrained in the land, or it means there's no threats against them. They live safely in the land. Now, the storm, the hordes of Gog, when they come out, will be so big, it would be like a cloud covering. You all ever seen one of these Texas storms? See, I come from areas that are from mountains. And when I moved to Texas, I've never seen so much sky, and you see this black cloud coming out, the little, little gray line underneath. That's frightening sometimes. And this is what it will be like for Israel as a storm comes out. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry silver and gold and take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? What is God's motive for this battle? He wants money. Israel has gotten very rich. They have become a first world nation. They have the fourth largest army in the world. They have the Dead Sea minerals and now they have discovered a huge bounty of natural gas. So, people want to come and plunder them. Now, it talks about some interesting nations. We've got uh, Sheba and Dedan, which are the old names for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So, we know that those players in Saudi Arabia are just going to sit it out. We also know the merchants of Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was considered the Rock of Gibraltar, Spain, as far as the known world was. And there is actually archaeological evidence that shows that the old Middle East actually traded with Great Britain. So some of you might have the interpretation young lions. It's more than likely talking about Great Britain, America, Australia. Sit this out, and they're watching that. And you notice, too, that Israel's condition. They're in safety, and they have no walls. Therefore, son of mine, prophesy and say to God, this is what the sovereign Lord says in that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? Will you not come from your place? In the far north, you and many nations with you. For all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army, you would advance against my people Israel like the cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that nations may know me when I show myself holy through you because of their eyes. Now, if you notice in the last map, what is the farthest north you can get from Jerusalem? Moscow. Now, some people think it's Turkey, but if you get really far north, Moscow is the northernmost city directly across. So it just substantiates 
that Rus and Gog are from Russia. They come from the far north. And you see this again, God reiterates this over and over again. I'm going to show myself holy through this. God has purposes for this. Matter of fact, you get the 17, God gives up speaking through Ezekiel. He just jumps. Have you ever done some of those yo mama competitions or in your face? God is kind of getting in God's face, chest to chest, and he's saying, verse 17, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. And he goes on to talk about prophets of old. Now we read in the Old Testament, you're like, well, where are the other times that they talked about this? Well, God skips over time here, because time's pretty relevant for God, and talks to God face to face. So he's saying, hey, look, read Ezekiel, read Joel. They were talking about this battle coming. And look, God, you're in trouble. And this is what I'm going to do to you. When God attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at the time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground. And all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against God on the mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. You see here that God not only just destroys the armies, he gets them fighting against each other. He sets an earthquake up. He has sulfur and burning stuff coming out of the air, maybe from the volcanic activity from the earthquake. Maybe from nuclear missiles, we don't know. But at the end, there can be only one conclusion about how they were destroyed. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? And him and his troops and all the mighty many nations with them. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The whole world will suffer a terrible earthquake. The whole world will see this battle and see the destruction of God supernaturally. And the whole world will know there is a God. And I tell you, there won't be a single atheist left after that point. Son of man, prophesy against God and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against you. O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, I will turn you around and drag you along. Drag you along. Go back to the hooks. The Assyrians used to hum- like to humiliate the people they conquered. They put hooks in their mouth or through their back, and they'd have them pull their chariots. And God says, I'm going to humiliate you like this. You ever seen the Indiana Jones movies where he's being dragged behind a truck or a tank or a plane? or He's always being dragged around. It's like that. He's dragging them around so they can decimate them. And I will turn you around and drag you along, and I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. So here we know where the, the battlefield is, the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and make your arrows drop from your right hand. They come with lots of weapons, but they are useless against them. And on the mountains of Israel, you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. So not only does God decimate this army when it reaches Israel, he goes back and starts decimating their home countries. He starts burning up Gog and Magog and all those nations. So it's a pretty thorough victory for God. I will make myself known my holy name among the peoples of Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned. Now how many times do we take the Lord's name in vain and think we can get away with it? 
God does have a tipping point. Eventually, he does not want his name profaned. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. And those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it down from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel and they will plunder those who plunder them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. There will be so much armament left over that Israel will be able to use it for fuel. Now you wonder in a, in a modern day scenario, how do you burn a machine gun? Or, you know, what good are bullets? I don't want to throw bullets in the fire. But this is interesting, and this is a side note, that Russian tanks are made out of something called ligmastone that burns so hot that you can actually burn a tank and get fuel from it. You know, kind of like Moisha, throw another tank on the fire. That kind of mentality. But it could be the fuel out of the tanks. It, it could be nuclear material. Uh, again, Ezekiel's 2,600 years ago, so I don't know if he knows about that. But he's saying they will definitely take that fuel and use it, and it will last them for seven years. And those who live in the town of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. Let's skip down to 11. On that day, I will give God a burial place in Israel. In the valley of those who traveled east towards the sea, it will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. And for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I'm glorified will be a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. Men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go out throughout the land. In addition to them, others will bury those who remain on the ground. And at the end of the seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, will set up a marker beside it until the gravediggers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Also a town called Hamona will be there. And so they will cleanse the land. It's going to take Israel seven months to bury. Now, it's interesting, statistically, there's about five, six million Israelis in Israel right now. And let's say just a million of them go out and start burying bodies. And you take that, and you take the seven months, and you subtract the Sabbath days, and we can estimate that if they just buried one a day, it's 180 million bodies that will be buried. If they bury two a day, I'm pretty sure I could bury at least two a day. That'd be 360 million bodies. So this horde is a horde. It is massive. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out of every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together to form from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, eat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. God calls out tons of animals, and it's interesting he says it's a sacrifice. This is a sacrifice to God. The Israelis act as a priesthood to go out and cleanse the land because God likes cleanliness and holiness. And this army becomes, and this army is filled. Look at the princes and mighty men. These are the best of the best of the best of soldiers that these armies could create. And they're nothing. They're wiped out instantly, and they're nothing more than bird food. And I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflicted and the hand I lay upon them. And from that day forward, the house of Israel know that I am the Lord your God. 
and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed him over to be their enemies, and they will all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanliness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed towards me when they lived in the land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord your God. For though I sent them to exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. The regathering in Israel we see today will begin to be completed then. They will be brought, the Jews, back from all over the world into Israel, and we are seeing that even happening today. Now, Israel lives in a state of humanism and secularism, and there is an orthodox group but at this time, after seeing this battle, they will believe in God again. They will worship God again. And the world will have no choice but to realize that God exists. And that is the outcome of the battle. And the outcome of the battle, too, is that God gets the glory. Now, this is a pretty dramatic battle. It's going to affect the whole world. Are we going to live through it? Are we going to see this battle? a million dollar question, right? I mean, do you want to live in a worldwide earthquake? Well, let's check. We can look at some of the clues that Ezekiel gives us and figure out where in the Bible it is. All right, he gives us some general timing clues to let us know about when this battle will happen. We know that there is no historic fulfillment of this event. There's never been a town called Hamona. There's never been a valley where Israel has never spent seven months burying the dead. This not have happened yet. Now he gives us some word clues, latter years and last days, and those always refer to the Jews, to the seven years of tribulation that are going to come, the time of Jacob's trouble, and the millennial kingdom, the thousand years when Jesus comes afterwards. So we know that this has to happen somewhere around the tribulation or in the tribulation, or it has to have something to do with the millennium. So we know it's future. The Jews have to be gathered back into Israel to be a nation. You can't have Israel coming back to God if they're not back in the land. So we've seen that happen in our lifetimes. There have to be certain developments. Now, you saw all these nations that were up there. They had nothing to do with each other in Ezekiel's time. They didn't get along. They were squabbling. But what unites those nations today? Islam. Other than Russia, which has got a pretty strong group, Russia is in it for the money. But the other nations hate Israel because they believe that Allah wants them destroyed. So these nations had nothing to do with each other are now united under the banner of Islam. And the fifth general time includes that Israel needs to be in a time of peace, and they're not expecting this. Well, Israel is always expecting to be attacked. So that's an interesting precondition that we'll have to deal with. Let's look at, maybe this could happen before the rapture, and even before the tribulation. There's some pros and cons to this idea. Well, there's seven years that the tribulation, seven years to burn the future. It doesn't have anything to do with the tribulation. There's no latter years and last days that this happens before the rapture. Israel really at peace? I don't think so. The rapture, when God comes back for the church and takes them up to heaven, is what's called an imminent event. It can happen at any time without preconditions. So if we saw the great Gog-Magog battle happen, would that give us the clue then that we should be looking for the rapture? It doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible. Maybe the Antichrist gives Israel that peace. When he signs that peace treaty that begins the seven-year tribulation, maybe he's the one that does it. 
can't do that if it's before the rapture. And the seven-year tribulation will not equal the time to burn the weapons if we have a few extra years on top of it before the tribulation. Possibly. I'll show you a, a caveat to that later. Maybe it will happen after the rapture, after we're taken to heaven, but before the seven years of tribulation. After all, the world will be in chaos, right? The rapture will leave ever the whole world going nuts. And the Muslims could say, hey, let's use this opportunity and go against Israel. That's a possibility. Maybe this will be the time just that the Antichrist can feel free to make a treaty with Israel. That's a possibility. Europe will stand alone. Think about it. You take Russia out of the picture. Israel is now in charge of the Middle East. The rest of the countries are sitting out. What's the world power? you got the EU and China. And we know China is in the Bible. It happens at the end of Armageddon. So this brings out the EU possibly. Israel gets to build a temple again. This gives them plenty of time to start building the temple that's supposed to exist during the tribulation, the one the Antichrist causes the abomination midway. And it gives them the full seven years to burn with weapons. Now again, this is before the tribulation, so it might conflict with the latter years, last day, time and clue that he gives us. And there's uh, peaceful preconditions may depend on the Antichrist. All right, let's get to the tribulation. We're pretty sure the latter years, last days. Maybe the Antichrist gives you that peace, that seven years, so they can be unsuspecting of a big attack. After all, Europe stands alone and the Antichrist comes from Europe. And this would give them an opportunity to establish a one-world religion. Islam's wiped off the picture. Christianity has been raptured, so it's just beginning a movement again. The only nation, the only religion that would stand against the Antichrist would be Judaism. So this would be his opportunity to start a one-world religion. But if it's in the tribulation, do we have the seven years to burn the weapons? We know that midway in the tribulation, Israel, the Antichrist, will kick them out and they'll flee to Jordan, possibly Petra, and so they might not have the full amount of time to burn those weapons. And if it's definitely in the middle of the tribulation, they don't have the seven years to bury the dead because they'll be under great persecution by the Antichrist. So would God take Israel and rescue them so amazingly and then desolate them before the Antichrist so quickly? That's the question. Maybe it's the end of tribulation. Now, a lot of people believe that what we just read, the Gog-Magog battle, happens in Armageddon. Of course, they both happen. The latter years, the last days, we know Armageddon is the last battle of the tribulation. They both talk about birds eating the dead, and Israel returns to God. But, and I had to use a smaller font because there's so many cons to this, the nations in the battles don't match. We know that the Gog-Magog battle brings those nations I showed you on the map, but in the Armageddon, all the nations of the world attack Israel. The locations for the battles don't match. We know that Gog-Magog battle happens on the mountains of Israel. But at Armageddon, it happens in the Valley of Jezreel, which is in a valley. The defeats don't match. God supernaturally destroys with fire and hail and brimstone the armies of Gog Magog. But at Armageddon, Jesus comes down and just starts speaking. And you know, you've seen that first Indiana Jones movie where the Nazi starts melting and his eyes pop out and all. It's like that. And so that's what happens at the Armageddon. So the defeats are different. There's no peaceful precondition for Israel, certainly before Gog Magog, but if it's before Armageddon and the Israels are being persecuted mightily, there's no peaceful precondition in that. There's some protesting nations. We saw Saudi Arabia protesting that the Gog Magog battle would happen. They're going to sit it out. But not at Armageddon. Every nation is involved, ready to kill Israel. If it's at the end of the tribulation, when are they going to burn the weapons? When Jesus comes back, he cleanses the land. There's no purpose to bury the dead or to burn fuel. Look at the leaders of the army. We have Gog as the leader of Gog-Magog battle. We have the Antichrist coming as the leader of the opposition then. And you know, maybe they're both possessed by Satan. That's a possibility. 
There's different opponents in the battle too. Gog Magog, they come to attack Israel. At Armageddon, they come to attack Jesus Christ. I don't think this battle is Armageddon. Maybe there, after the tribulation, there's an interlude period, you know, a time where this could happen. I mean, after all, Jesus comes back, the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, he gives Israel peace. Maybe he can have all the time they want to burn the weapons. But you know, if Jesus comes back at the end, at Armageddon, and wipes out all the enemy nations, who's left to attack? There's nobody left. And Israel already acknowledges God. Now, the Bible does talk about an interlude, a 75-day interlude between the tribulation and the millennia. And it's what happens during that time is called the sheep-goat judgment, where God takes the survivors, of the tribulation and the sheep are the ones who believe in him and they live on into the millennial kingdom the goats are the ones who still refuse God who are left and they go down to Hades or hell so there is no group there not enough time 75 days this doesn't do it to burn the weapon now at the beginning of the millennium maybe after Jesus has come back and he's restored peace and prosperity maybe that gives the peaceful precondition well I think you can see the obvious flaws in this idea. There's no armies left to attack Israel. Israel already acknowledges God. There's only believers left. Why would the believers all of a sudden turn around and start attacking Jesus? There's no weapons left. At that time in the millennia, remember, we take our plowshares and beat them into pruning hooks. There's no weapons. They have nothing to fight with. You know, maybe they'll come in like ninjas and attack. But there's, there's no weapons. And the Bible tells of only one war, and that's at the end of the millennium, not at the beginning. The millennium is supposed to be a holy state. A time of peace and prosperity when Jesus reigns in Jerusalem and bringing glory to himself and peace to others. And so a war at the beginning makes no sense. There's nothing to unite those nations in the millennial kingdom. There won't be any more Islam. And I'm not really a call for this, but I think something like that deserves an amen. There will be no more Islam deceiving people and leaving them to hell. And that's a blessed thing. And Jesus rules. You've got to be insane. Without Satan backing you up to try to attack God, it makes no sense. Maybe at the end of the millennium. Now, I had so many cons here, I had to put them up into two slides. So we'll see. A lot of people think that maybe the Gog Magog is in Revelation 20, 7 through 8, where it talks about Gog Magog. So if you all want to skip over to Revelation 20, 7 through 8, I can read that to you. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. Well, there you go. It's going to happen at the end of the millennia, right? I mean, we're talking about massive invading armies. Israel's prosperous from a thousand years of Jesus defending them. And both armies are defeated by supernatural weather. But there is a lot of problems with the Gog-Magog battle being the Gog-Magog battle of Revelation. Ezekiel is one of the few prophets that actually outlines all his prophecies other than two chapters in a chronology. And once you get to chapter 39, you get to 40 to 48, it talks about the millennial kingdom. Revelation, when it's done talking about the final battle, it goes right into the eternal state. So they don't blend. Well, if Jesus at the end, at the final battle of the millennia, he's going to incinerate all his enemies. There'll be nothing to bury for seven months. As a matter of fact, he's going to raise them back from the dead so they can face the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. Oh, that doesn't make sense either. The armies are different. Gog Magog, some at the end of millennia. There's all the nations, different battlefields. The mountains of Israel during the millennia. Everything will be a plain. It'll look like Texas. Oh, geez. It'll all be flat. There'll be lots of stuff. 
It's on the plains then. The leaders of Israel will be different. It'll be man versus Jesus. The leaders of the invasion different. It's God versus Satan at the end when he's released from the pit to lead those armies against Jesus for one final battle. Israel's faith different. When God made God battle happens, they don't believe in God. At the end, you can bet they believe in God because they're serving God for those thousands of years. The soldiers are different. There's Gentiles who lead the Gog Magog battle. But the children of those believers born in the millennial kingdom will still get a choice whether they can choose God or not. And they were the ones at the end will rebel against Jesus and have Satan lead them into battle. So the soldiers are different. So I believe that this one is saying that Gog Magog battle in Revelation 20 is a reference back. Hey, do you remember back in those days when Israel was attacked by Gog and Magog? It's like that, but it's not really. And that's what Revelation is talking about. Now that's a lot of terms and a lot of things flying around. Let me tell you what I think. This is the order I think it will happen. Some things could move around. Some things are stable. I believe the next thing you're going to see is the rapture of the church. Now, I read all those articles to you. The players are in place. God is ready to bring the church back. Very soon. Israel subjugates the surrounding neighbors. You look at that map. For some reason, the neighbors around Israel just aren't attacking when they should be. So I think Israel's going to do something. You've got to do something about all those missiles pointing into them. Next is when the Gog-Magog battle will happen. That's when they will attack Israel in great hordes. The tribulation will begin, ending with Armageddon. God will then use those 75 days to have a judgment on those who survive. The tribulation, called the sheep-goat judgment, will enter into a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning in peace and righteousness, ending with Satan being released and leading those in unbelief against Jesus and getting wiped out. And then the final battle, where God finally has the great white throne judgment. And then we move into the eternal state. And that's the order I see it. And the first three, four could be moved around a bit. But I honestly don't think that we are going to see that happen. Why? Because the characteristics of God. We can learn a lot from God from this story. First one, God knows what's in the minds of men, 3810. If you think you're having private thoughts, you're not. God knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're planning. He knows who you're looking at. He knows you're talking. It almost sounds like Santa Claus, but it's not. It's God, and he knows what's in your mind. God knows ahead of time what will happen. Can you surprise God? I mean, here he's laying out this whole battle 2,600 plus years before it's ever going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And when you pray to God, oh God, I've lost my job or I don't know where my next meal is, or I'm having a terrible relationship with this person, it's only going to end in disaster. God knows how it turns out. God lets us know before he acts. Isn't that interesting that God tells us before he does things? He warns us ahead of time. Nothing just springs up on us. If we read the Bible, if we study the Bible, we know what's going to happen next. God is mad at the nation. Now, again, that Old Testament, New Testament thing where people think that God is just this angry, cranky old person who sits up there in heaven with his long flowing beard and Jesus comes and everything zippity doo da day. It's not the case. They're the same guy. And God doesn't is mad at the nations because they've rebelled against him. We continue to rebel against him. And so he is mad. It is God himself who entices the Magog coalition to war and their own destruction. Is that nuts? All those Ahmadinejad screaming and yelling? It's because God is fueling something in him to do it? so that he can be destroyed one day. God's behind us, and this is a difficult concept, that God can be behind 
the destruction and the evil and the sin we have, not that he's causing it, but that he's allowing it to cause and superheating our own desires to the point where we reach judgment. God can be provoked to acting on his anger. I hear this all the time. Why isn't God back yet? What is he taking so long? And there's a point where God has his cup and he fills it up and when it gets to the top, that's when he's ready to tip. That's where he's released anger. God isn't going to always forgive all the wrongs of this world. At some point he will act. Now if you're a believer in Christ, you're like, yes, finally. If not, and you're the one that's subject to the wrath, that can be pretty scary. He will act one day. He will reveal his glory in no uncertain terms. When he comes back, we will know as believers, the world will know because of the things he does during the tribulation. When Jesus comes back to the second coming, everyone will see him that survive. He will make sure that people know that he's there. Now, a lot of, I get a few emails from atheists now and then, and uh, one of them was really honest with me. One said, I want a third option. I want just a God to leave me alone. Don't judge me. Don't bring me to heaven. Just leave me alone. But if that adage is true. If you're against, not for God, you're against God. And so God will judge his enemies one day. There's no third camp. So this is me. God promises to restore Israel to their land and the land from desolation to bounty. I've been to Israel twice now. And i got to tell you, as a guy who likes flowers, and I'm not very manly, but I like flowers, and you drive down those highways, and the land is just solid walls of flowers. There's crops everywhere in March. You can pull fruit from the trees. they got food all over the place. And just a century ago, it was a desolate, barren wasteland, but they could even count the number of trees that were there. They had so few trees. And there's five to six million of them back in Israel. God is fulfilling that prophecy today. And as we read in Gog Magog, he will continue to bring them all back in. God provides for his covenant people. If God has made you a promise, if he's made an agreement with you, he will keep it a hundred percent of the time. God will again pour out his spirit on Israel. Now this is very important for the timing. And I say this to the end. If God's Holy Spirit is on the church right now, how can it be on Israel? You have to take the Holy Spirit from the church to move it to Israel. And so that's why the rapture will happen before the God-may-God battle. The church will be gone. The Holy Spirit can focus on Israel because he's fulfilled his promises. And God always fulfills his promises. Now what promises has God made for you? He promised that he loves you and he will always take care of you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Did he promise that if you ask him to be save you from your sins and to be your savior, that he will do that? How do we overcome this? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he's made promise to save you from your sins, to bring you to heaven, to save you from all that terribleness that's coming up ahead? Have you accepted that? And I ask this question. Why did you come to this conference? Maybe you really love Bible prophecy. Maybe your parents dragged you here. There's a reason God brought you here because he wants you here. I think now is the time, if you haven't yet, you need to ask Jesus to be your Savior. He loves you. He wants you to ask for forgiveness of the sins and to be your Savior. He loves you. And so all you have to do is simple. You just have to, in your heart, change from an attitude of rebellion to an attitude of love. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Be my Savior. Do that today because I don't know when all this is going to happen, but we read it and it is going to happen soon and you don't want to be in the tribulation. You don't want to wait for the rapture. And this is horrible stuff coming up. And most of all, you don't want to be against God and have to spend eternity separated from Him in hell. 
today, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead. You need to tell someone today so that they know you've been saved. And if you're a believer, when Jesus comes back, what are you going to find you doing? How are you spending your time? If we know we only have days, months, weeks, I don't know how long. What are you doing with your time? Are you living it holy? Jesus comes back. What's he going to see you doing? Is he going to see you reading something you shouldn't or watching something or wasting your time? Now's the time to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your promises. You say you're going to make a promise and you're going to do it and you do it. We know that you have made promises to us. You've made promises to Israel. We have already been proven that that's already happening. We can trust when you say that you have loved us, that you've died for us, and that if we accept that, that we will be in heaven with you. We will be a children of our God. We will not have the old life anymore, but we'll have a new. And if there's anybody here today, Lord, I pray that they will turn to you in salvation. Speak to their hearts. I know there's a tugging when it comes to giving up that life and turning to you, and I pray that you will have victory over their hearts. And they will tell people, tell me even after this, if they've accepted Jesus as Savior. And Lord, we pray that you will keep all of us who believe in you busy until the end, sharing the gospel and bringing many into your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your great love, your great blessing, your great faithfulness to us. In your precious name, amen.